Okay. Are we ready, Terry? Oh, has it really been going? Oh, that's great. Okay. Let's uh, let me since that's happening. Let's uh, let me start with um, a couple of things. I got a letter from Chris Lincoln. You know, I, I feel like uh, I feel like I'm doing the mail portion now of the uh, of the program. He sent a picture. What beautiful family! And he uh, so you should come and read it. I won't read the whole letter, but it is very good and very funny. I think you'll think so. Dear Pastor Chronister and Cliffside Faithful. Um, Chris uh, Lincoln and his wife uh, from Missouri. I wanted to take the occasion of finally completing all 109 podcasts in the Genesis series to say thank you to Cliffside for publishing this excellent series. And that's Dave, by the way, that has done that. Dave Stahl. So, Chris, I think you know that. But I am certain that Pastor Chronister's effort was not light, and I know that posting live recordings is a labor of love. My family greatly appreciates the work. My wife, Karen, found Cliffside on the Internet about a year ago. She has a knack for finding worthwhile things on the Internet, which requires great skill. I started listening when you answered her email question about 153 fish. Our son, Nate, 15, listens now on his own iPod. Our daughter, Haley, 13, still plugs her ears and runs screaming from the room when we play Cliffside recordings. And Haley has already become my favorite. But I am not concerned for her because she is the one among us that has a true heart for the lost and a zeal for the Lord. We are blessed to have found a microscopically small expositional dispensational local church that is very close doctrinally to Cliffside. I wish the congregation were more plentiful, but I would not want to compromise on hearing the truth. However, if we lived in Anchorage, we would gladly be part of the Cliffside faithful. I must give heaps of praise to the Holy Spirit for chipping away at decades of accumulation of bad doctrine on my part. The accumulation was self-inflicted because I did not follow any rules, only my own understanding when I studied Scripture. Applying rule number one alone knocked away heavy chunks. Rule number one, as you know, Jesus Christ is always God. Never, ever think that he is not God. He always is. He's always omnipotent. He's always omnipresent. He is always omniscient. To think otherwise, you will fail. Your teaching and teaching style have been an effective tool for him. Now when I read scripture, certain words, phrases, and of course questions just leap off the pages. The Bible has become 3D for me without the silly glasses. Growing beyond an understanding or misunderstanding of the surface layer of scripture does wonders to my ability to witness. I had to put a bookmark on my place in the current Romans series so I could suspend it and listen to the Genesis series. It takes a lot of time to make it through 109 podcasts. When I account for losing my place due to iPod hiccups, rewinding because I didn't understand something, or rewinding because the message was so darn good, estimate that I listened to each one about two and a half times on average. Now I am ready to return to class, but I have more catching up to do. I was excited to learn that there was a beginning (laughs) to the Roman series because I started cold in the middle of an explanation of the meaning of 153 fish. Did I ever really answer that? I think I just uh, said, listen, it's a Passover pattern. Good luck. Isn't that what I did? I should do that some other time uh, more in depth as it deserves. It is the great proof of the of the. Deity of Christ. I am sure it won't be long that I wonder if there will ever be an end to the Roman series. 
just like I did with the Genesis series. I'm just kidding, of course. I take these lessons very seriously and do not care how long it takes. I would be disappointed if you just started glossing over just to get things done. Please find enclosed a universally accepted coupon. Okay? And he did. He enclosed a coupon that you would recognize as uh, a Federal Reserve note. Please find enclosed a universally accepted coupon good for donuts, pizza, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Aha! Or whatever. And uh, Chris, we want to tell you and Karen that we did uh, use your universally accepted coupon for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, Put something on the buffet with our name on it, and remember that we would gladly join you all every week were it not for the geography that separates us. So when you eat the chicken today, or one of those out there, understand that that is Chris and Karen Lincoln. So you might pass that out and let people see that they really, they, they are real out there. It's, a, it's an extraordinary thing. And very fast, uh, we had Angelo from Bermuda uh, who uh, let Dave know of a concern. He has people that are very dear to him, and he wants to know what he should do regarding behavior that they're engaging in um, that he feels is destructive. How should he handle that? And, and um, Angelo um, is a terrific guy. We're thinking about moving the church to Bermuda, Angelo, just, to, just because it would be... Uh, after this winter, it would be a, a wonderful idea. <clears throat> but I have told, I've had to deal with this a lot, and I, I just tell people, listen, I cannot correct free will decision choices. I can't. I can't control you. I don't want to control you, or anyone for that matter. Um, I had somebody call me this week uh, telling me something they were going to do, and I said, all I can do is tell you the consequences for that and uh, ask you the simple question. I give him John 11:25, where he says, "I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this?" And so, do you believe that? And then, if they say yes, well, then I have done my job. You will never die, but you will be judged. We will all be judged. Do you believe this? And then it is up to the Holy Spirit to uh, affect their behavior. So I always, uh, whenever somebody tells me they're going to do something that uh, I think is uh, questionable, I always go to John 11:25 and read it to them and ask them that question as carefully as I can. Do you believe this, that he is the resurrection and the life, and that you will never die, you will live forever? Do you believe that? And then it's the Holy Spirit's job from there. It always is anyway, but uh, that's how I do it, and it seems to... Uh, to get me through those kinds of things. So, Angelo, I would I would advise that as the first step and then see what happens. You'd be surprised sometimes. Okay, here we go. February 5, 2012, lecture discussion number 55 on the book of Romans. And I must be fast and I must be short and I all know, I know all of that. So I'm going to hurry. This is a, as you know, a special Super Bowl sermon today with all of the pressure uh, that accompanies the, uh, that, the added pressure, and it's replete with football analogies and references, um, as I am wont to do each and every special Sunday, whether it be Super Bowl Sunday or Mother's Day Sunday, or this year, for example, uh, we have uh, Income Tax Sunday. So I will have a special Income Tax Sunday sermon, or whatever. As you are aware, I'm very sensitive to the trends within the contemporary church. I have today. I am. I want to be accepted by these guys. I really do. I, uh, I I want so much to be included in all the reindeer games or pastor games 
And um, I never am. And it isn't my red nose that stops it. And I want to be praised by them, so much so that I eagerly leap on the bandwagon. Every opportunity, I rush to join the masses in the parade, blah, blah, blah. And I want to do what they recommend. And they send me stuff, by the way. Some of you know it. I want to bring it, and I will bring it. They send me, very consistently, uh, Pastor Chronister, we thought this would be useful to you. And what it is, is a is a pretty good-sized book they gave me, didn't they, dear, on how to preach properly. And they, they, they think I stink. And they all these illustrations and things on how to do a much better job. Um, and, and I, of course, uh, constantly fail. And they do check us out. They are stunned. I shouldn't. I won't tell you who they are. They're really wonderful people, but they are stunned that uh, we have the internet audience that we do. They cannot believe it, and it is kind of fun for me. But I will bring those into you, and I'll read some of that to you, so you can see how much uh, what they think of me. Um, but I want to do. You know I don't, but I'm pretending, aren't I? I want to do what they recommend on these special Sundays, which, of course, is to concoct a topical lecture with clever little phrases that, that fit the theme of the day, which today it is the football theme. I even got on the Internet to see all the new titles. You can buy them. You can buy sermons for today. Five ninety nine. Download. Bang. There you go. And, but uh, that didn't seem like a good idea. I wanted to do my own. And so I've worked really hard, and I'm sure you'll be impressed at all my efforts today, especially the uh, title, the special title today. I don't title them, do I? I never do. But I thought, okay, well, I'm going to title them. And and so I'm going to give you the title here in a second, and I want you to feel free to spontaneously burst into applause. Our our song, either one, would be good, your choice. So you ready? Today's title. (laughs) Life... And I wanted to write it down, but I didn't think I had time to put the board up, as you know. Life is a Super Bowl of choke cherries. Try not to choke. Okay? There's my title. I know, boo as you wish, but it's coming, it's, it's coming back. It's coming back. Look, I could have paid $5.99 and gotten a really good one, but no. I wanted to make my, but let's ask a question, since you're booing. Why do they call them choke cherries? And I realize that not everyone knows what a choke cherry is, so I'm going to elucidate a little bit. I'm going to give you some information. I'm sticking with this theme, aren't I? Choke cherries grow on a suckering shrub, shrub, sorry, a suckering shrub. And I'm not making this up. It's maybe 15 feet high. And they're bright red or they're black uh, in color, and they're not to be confused with choke berries. Because choke berries are not choke cherries. Choke cherries will cause, and by the way, did you notice, notice the bowl of, never mind. That choke cherries will cause death if they're eaten by animals that have segmented stomachs. So, you know, a moose, goat, horse, um, deers, cattle. The wilting process of the leaves, as the leaves die in a frost, for example, uh, they release cyanide. And the fruit is extremely bitter, very bitter. Uh, and, and so in order to make it edible, what do they do to it? They usually add uh, large amounts of sugar or honey. 
Honey is a wonderful symbol in Scripture, by the way. It has a dual symbolism. It's fantastic. The honey bee and taking honey is both an antichrist symbol as well as a biblical symbol. But uh, you have to you have to overcome the bitterness to fool people into thinking that it's good and it tastes good. By now you might be asking, what does all of this have to do with Romans four, Hebrews six, James two eighteen, First Timothy six ten, John eight forty four, and Ezekiel twenty eight fifteen through sixteen? Because that's where we're at, right? I would imagine that I just put that on the board. That's where we currently are. Those four, or I'm sorry, those six places: Romans four, Hebrews six, James two. 1 Timothy 6, John 8, 44, and Ezekiel 28. Uh, so I need to kind of go over them again to get you where we have to be. Romans 4 is where the absolutes are. What are the absolutes in Romans 4? Yes, I have, I have the side that, that believes God, and I have the side of him who works. Those are the absolutes. They are absolutely apart. Do you believe God, or are, are you one who works for salvation? They are opposites, believing God versus him who works. That's the Romans 4 contrast. Hebrews 6, that which is impossible. Hebrews 6 tells you that there is something that is impossible. And it, is, they, it says, says to you that it is impossible to re-crucify Christ. You cannot re-crucify Christ. That is impossible. And therefore, it's impossible for what? It is impossible to be to lose your salvation because it is impossible to be resaved. So that is the great impossible in Scripture. If you can't reason that out, or if it's if it's hard for you to reason that out, see me later, and I'll explain how the word impossible affects both clauses of Hebrews six, and so that you can get that firmly inside of you. But just if nothing else from me in all of these lectures on Romans that I have done, understand it is impossible to re-crucify Christ. And what is the uh, implication, I'm sorry, what is the result of that? Doctrinally. Now, James 2.18, number three. The someone who says, very important, someone who says something. J- uh, James puts something, and then he said, there is someone who says. Who is this someone who says? What does he say? Why does he say it? Is it a lie? What he says to someone in James 2.18. If so, if you conclude it is a lie, why then does he lie? And who does he deceive? Who does he fool with his lie? So knowing who the someone is and what he says and why he says it, very important to understand why James 2 does not conflict with Romans 4. Now, next, number, uh, where am I? Number four? Uh, yeah, number four. First Timothy 6.10. What's that one? That is where the love of money is the root, the origin of all evil. All evil. The love of money is the root, the origin of all, all evil. And we've been working on that, haven't we? How is that the case? How is that so? What is being said by those who love money about themselves? What are they saying about God when they love money? Why is it evil to love money? Why is it the root of all evil? And then now you have to add John 8.44 to the equation number five here in our list. It's on the board that isn't really up here 
but you're pretending. John 8, 44. Satan is a murderer from the beginning. So you see the root of all evil, and also Satan is a murderer from the beginning. That's how you get from 1 Timothy 6, 10 to John 8, 44. So immediately you ask, the beginning of what? Beginning of what? When is the beginning of Satan's murder, murdering? Where was the beginning of it? Uh, in other words, where does, where does the murdering start? And who was murdered? And it says in John 8, 44, there is no truth, no truth in Satan. He is the one who spoke the very first lie. He is therefore called the father of all lies. So you have the root of all evil, the father of all lies. That's how you get Timothy to John, or First Timothy 6, 10 to John 8, 44. And lastly, Ezekiel 28, 15, 16, uh, the abundance of Satan's traffic. If your Bible says uh, trading, you might say trading, Ezekiel, uh, cross out trading. The, uh, it's called the abundance of, his tra- of your traffic is what it says. The one uh, by one spreading of the lie to the angelic host. So this is where the first lie was taken to the angelic host. Uh, and it's called trafficking. And you've heard it done, haven't you? A trafficking in whatever. It's uh, trafficking in lies, trafficking in some criminal activity. But that's, uh, that's the root of all of that, if you will, linguistically. So this is where the murderings, this answers the when, the where, and the who. The murderings occurred here in uh, Ezekiel 28, 15, and 16. The, the abundance of Satan's traffic. And that pretty much reestablishes where we've been. And being that today's lesson is what? What's it about? What's the title? Choke cherries, that's right. It's about choke cherries, a bowl of choke cherries. The Super Bowl of choke cherries. <laughs> You should see your faces. It's just, it's just fantastic. I should film it. I would, I would have hours of enjoyment. Okay. Choke cherries that grow on sucker bushes and are bitter and poison that need honey and sugar. Okay. If I beat that in enough that you'll follow it when I finally, never mind. Now let's ask some questions. Uh, drill down into the internal numbers if you are thinking that way statistically, a statistic metaphor. Uh, what else could I have said? What other metaphor could I have used? I could have said, let's study the deep yardage gained against the cover two zone, but I didn't say that, did I? Okay, actually, I just did say that, didn't I? Yeah. Anyway, backing up to 1 Timothy 6.10, item number four on our most holy platinum model, no, it's not even there, what you're imagining. For those who are following along at home, it's a platinum model reversible dry erase board. Item number four. The love of money is the root of all evil, which should immediately cause you to collect something. You should go and collect something as soon as you find that. The love of money is the root of all evil. You should immediately go and collect all the impossibles. Always a good path to follow. Find and collect the impossibles. Find and collect the rich, the lovers of money. Uh, Matthew 19:23 through 26. You might be asking, why am I collecting impossibles? The, the, but let's keep going. Maybe you'll see. Matthew 19, uh, 23 through 26. As you may remember, has a rich man in it, doesn't it? What is it for the rich man to do? It says essentially that the, it has an, imp- it has an impossible in the, ta- in the topic, in those verses. 
It has an impossible. It has a camel, and it has a needle. A needle. I'm sorry. And it has a, a, a disciples that are what? When Christ says something to them about the rich man and the impossible and the needle and the camel, what does the, what do the disciples do? They are greatly astonished by something. They're greatly astonished. And so the obvious question immediately is: You're collecting the impossibles because here's one, Matthew 19:23 through 26. Where's the other impossible? Hebrews 6. Huh? Obviously, I got to put Matthew 19 to Hebrews 6. Collect my impossibles. Why are these disciples greatly, not just astonished, greatly astonished? What is so astonishing that happened there? But what Christ said: Rich Pharisees don't go to salvation. Why was that greatly astonishing to the disciples? So astonishing, they were stunned by it. Matthew 19, 23 through 26 makes us proceed to Matthew 23. And that's the woes of the Pharisees, specifically Matthew 23, 23 through 24, where I'm going to collect something. What am I going to collect? I'm going to collect a camel. See, first I go to get my impossibles and then I go get my camels. What do I do next? Go find my needles. In order to understand what he's saying, I have to do this. That's the key to this. That's why I read Chris's, uh, Chris and Karen Lincoln's letter. Because you have to begin to say, not only 3D, but I've got to go find everything that makes, that brings it all together. He does not put it all in one place. He makes you hunt for it. Why? That's the process he wants you to have. That's the key. And you're being obedient when you do it. So we're going to read uh, Matthew 19, 23 through 26, and Matthew 23, 23 through 24, and you should have Hebrews 6 in your head already, so I don't have to go back and do that, and we're going to read that, but before we, we, uh, before we ask the, the obvious questions about all of that and, and loving money, uh, by the way, where is the most famous rich Pharisee pro, uh, passage in all of Scripture? Lazarus. Lazarus, the, the other Lazarus, uh, Luke 16, 19, right? Christ's true story, it's a true story, it's not a parable, he never calls it a parable, it's the true story about the other Lazarus. So what do I got to do? As soon as I see Lazarus, what do I have to do with that Lazarus? I got to go get the other Lazarus, the two Lazaruses, the Lazarus's eyes. How do you pluralize Lazarus's? I got to get them both and put them together. Now I have the full Lazarus story of what he was trying to teach with both men who really lived and the rich Pharisee, notice I call him the rich Pharisee. I can prove to you that he was a rich Pharisee. How do I prove it? I guess go find the other rich pieces. It is harder for a rich man to do what? To get into, to be saved. And now I have a rich man in Lazarus. And I go to another Lazarus and I have a whole bunch of tombs there. You start seeing how he wove all of this together. He is so good at this, this God. How lucky can he be? Did you think each one of them was independent and isolated? They're not. Don't look at your Bible that way. Never is that the case. But I have, a, but in Luke 16, 19 through 31, I have the other Lazarus, if you will, the one that's least known. Lazarus the beggar versus Lazarus the brother. So I have Lazarus and the evil rich Pharisee, and that evil rich Pharisee, a lot of people give him sympathy, but you cannot. He is 
he is evil and he lies. Everything he says in that passage is a lie. Everything he says in that passage is an accusation towards God's character. Every single thing. He repeats the original lie of Satan in Ezekiel 28. He repeats it almost verbatim. Almost word for word. And Matthew 4 as well, right? You've heard all of that. So I have the evil rich Pharisee who lies and accuses God of being disqualified from judging sin on the basis of what? What's his basis? What's his premise in uh, in that true story? His premise is, is God cannot judge sin because God is the author of sin. That's his premise. And that there's and 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 also that there is no solution to free will accountability and God's omniscience. Omniscience. That's also part of Luke 16, 19 through 31. And that is, in its entirety, that is the first lie of Satan. And I have a lecture. Uh, did you ever put the five-fold lies of Satan on the Internet? Uh, okay, it's somewhere out there. I don't know where it is. The five-fold lies of Satan. I, I juxtaposition those with the five-fold I-wills of Isaiah 14, which we'll get to here pretty quickly. I'm going to cover that a little bit today. Anyway, Christ destroys the first lie of Satan in Matthew 4. That's what's going on in Matthew 4. That's why they are out in the wilderness. That is what all of that is about, is the first lie of Satan being destroyed by God. To the delight of who? The witnessing angels. Now we're back to where Mike was during the offertory. The angelic host watched that confrontation and saw God. They didn't. Uh, what level of understanding did they have of the person of Christ is up for debate, but they saw Satan's lie exposed and destroyed in Matthew 4. So, first obvious, well, let's go ahead and read Matthew 19. i got to hurry, got to hurry, got to hurry. I'd hate for you to miss the first what? Am I worried about the kickoff? No, I'm not. I know that what's a, you see a kickoffs all the time. The game's going to be a massacre anyway, so what's the point? What am I worried about you missing? The commercials, that's right. I'm worried about that. So i gotta, I got to go. So it seemed pretty fast. Here we go, Matthew 19, 23 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for a rich man to be saved. Why am I bringing up rich men? Because this is about Timothy 6.10, right? First Timothy 6.10, loving money. It's hard for someone who loves money to be saved. Why? Okay. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel. What's the obvious question? Why did he pick camel? Why didn't he pick whale? Why didn't he pick 747? Why didn't he pick camel? What is it about a camel? Something very important about camels. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, a lover of money, to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard him say that, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. There's something unbelievable to them there. Stunned. And they said, who then can be saved? 
If rich people who love money can't be saved, who are they talking about? The Pharisees. If the Pharisees, who are all what? Very rich. The richest people in the city. Let me ask this really hard question. Is the richest people in this city members of the clergy? Yeah. The answer is yes. That isn't good news. You understand why. What are you saying when you love money? You got big problems. And the disciples were astonished that the rich Pharisees, who then, if the Pharisees can't be saved, who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible. What's impossible? What's the context? Do not think that it is the camel and the needle. That's not the context. What's the context? Salvation. Who then can be saved? With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What did he just say? Okay? Now, go to Matthew 23. And this is an impossible, isn't it? I gotta put my impossibles together. Where am I going? I gotta go back to Matthew, or Hebrews 6, right? Collect your impossibles. It is a impossible mission. <laughs> okay, it's a mission impossible. That's even funnier. Oh, golly. I think I'm just, I did, uh, the other day, I said, uh, I said, I'm going to make t-shirts that said, you survived lecture number, what was it? I can't remember now, 53 or 54. And now you're going to have another one. I laughed at all the jokes in lecture number, whatever this is, uh, 55. Okay. Now we're in Matthew 23, 23 through 24. <coughs> and I know it's my definition of joke, not yours. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is the great woe of Scripture, by the way. If you want to find out how not to behave, read Matthew 23. Woe to you, Scriptures and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise or anise and cumin or cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So what have I done now so far? I've collected my impossibles and I'm collecting my camels. Exactly as you should have uh, anticipated and as exactly as I want you to begin to do on your own. First obvious questions about loving money or rich Pharisees. Notice that I quickly do all these connecting. Remember, this is who's saying this. God in the flesh saying this. He is saying this on a purpose. He's giving you signs. Look, go find a camel verse. Go find an impossible verse. What else do you got to find now? A gnat verse. What are they doing with, why are, what are they straining gnats for? Because they did. They didn't want gnats to get into their food. Why not? Gnats are unclean. So they got a little, think of it as strainer, you know, paint strainer system to keep the gnats out. He said, you're straining out the gnats as you're swallowing camels. And you have neglected, you ought to have done the weightier matters. Law, justice, mercy, and belief. <sighs> okay. Anyway, what is so difficult? Why is it so difficult 
for a rich Pharisee to be saved. Christ knew it was really hard for a rich Pharisee to be saved. He knew. Why would he know? He's omniscient God and he's the judge of all things. He knew how many of them were going to make it. Yes, sir. A camel is an unclean animal. Absolutely correct. Leviticus 11. But he says it's impossible. It's very hard. And for man, it is impossible. But it is not impossible for God. With God, all things are possible. So notice the response to Christ again. Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And the answer, Christ answered that question, didn't he? Who can be saved? With man... It is impossible. You can't do something. It's impossible for you. What is it that you can't do? It's impossible to re-crucify Christ, and it is impossible for man to what? Save himself. And it is very hard for a rich man to go to him, a lover of money. So, my advice? There's a guy, Tom Monahan, an incredible story, who was the owner of, I think, Domino's Pizza. I'm pretty sure he sold it. He was worth billions of dollars and he gave it all away because he read that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's quite a story. I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he took that verse seriously. Good for him. He stopped loving money because he wanted to enter the kingdom of God. All things, who then can be saved? The answer, with men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That means good news for us, right? So connect again the impossibles. It's impossible for Christ to be re-crucified. It's impossible for man to save himself. Okay? Now, with knowing just those two impossibles, so much doctrinal error is resolved for you. That's why I'm Keep pounding it in so much. All you got to do is remember the two impossibles, and you're going to be fine doctrinally. And you can go uh, off now uh, putting camels through needles and swallowing them, uh, which, as you know, sends you to permitted and forbidden foods, uh, Leviticus 11. Because uh, you got to ask immediately, why are camels unclean? Why are gnats unclean? Why are grasshoppers and, and ants and honeybees? How, how does this work? They, some, some insects are good. Some insects bad. Predators bad. Prey good. Why? What's being taught by God with these animals? Why did he place them in the Jewish culture? He, he, he saturated the Jewish culture with the permitted and forbidden food system that he gave them because inside that system is great symbols of salvation. But I've already done that. It's somewhere on the CD. And uh, uh, no time today for an instant replay. <laughs> that's, that's so good. How much work and time and talent did it take for that? Huh? Don't, don't answer. Okay, let's uh, keep going on First Timothy 6.10. The love of money is the root of all evil. And Ezekiel 28.15-16, through 16, the abundance of your traffic. It's said to Satan himself, the abundance of your traffic, or the, the lie that you told over and over again throughout the angelic host. Okay? Eventually, like the camel and the needle, this becomes physical reality and spiritual reality. 
How do I get a camel through a needle? What do I got to do? And by the way, it's not something people have said, well, there's a place over there where it looks kind of like a needle and it's really hard to fit a camel through it. But you can do it with a little bit of bacon grease and a come along and maybe a forklift. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about physical reality. It is not impossible. It's impossible for men to deal with physical reality, but that's not the context. Again, I don't want to, I don't want to, God can adjust physical reality. He has authority over it. And so we end up with physical reality and spiritual reality with that camel and the needle and the swallowing of it. It's critically important for us and, and for, for that matter, all of mankind to know the purpose of the physical reality. What is the purpose of the physical reality? To know why God created the physical reality. Why did he create it? We like it. Some people love it. And Mike's great way to end the offertory today. I fall down before a block of wood. Some people fall down before blocks of wood. That's astonishing, isn't it? They do. They fall down in front of a rock. By the way, what's gold? It's a rock. What's a diamond? It's a rock. People will kill each other over a rock. You've got to be kidding me. They do it. I, I love the people that have figured out that you're not going to eat gold. Might as well, you might as well hoard soup. Gold isn't gonna, yeah, that's my blues song, right? I can't, I gotta think about it now. My, it goes, uh, something like, uh, your money's no good and you can't eat your gold baby. That's my, that's my blues song that I'm working on. I got the title. Every bit as good as my special Super Bowl title. But why did God create the physical reality and how the physical reality and the spiritual reality interact together? The precedence that the spiritual reality has, the priority that the spiritual reality has, the authority that the spiritual reality has over the physical reality. If you begin to think that the physical reality is more important than the spiritual reality, you have failed to understand the purpose. And you've heard me say quite often that ultimately physical reality is something that has to be perceived. That's George Berkeley, right? In order for it to exist, God has to think it into existence. And that the physical reality at the microscopic, uh, microscopic level, excuse me, is essentially empty space or nothing. So physical reality essentially is nothing. It's empty space. And the combining of those two concepts leads quickly to the spiritual reality or the theological implications of subatomic diameter brings one to the existence of the spiritual reality. What I meant by that is if physical reality is at a microscopic or the subatomic level is essentially nothing, then the only thing that exists is the spiritual reality. And you know it has priority and authority. And so how, what is the reason that he made this? if you will, this holograph that we are so fond of with all its rules and laws. And we're so convinced it's real, people will tell me, I can hit this and it's real. Well, where did you feel it? Well, I felt it in my, uh, I felt it in my mind. How do you see? You see in your mind, just close your eyes and imagine 
Me. Okay, do better than that. You see in your mind. You feel in your mind. Everything is in your mind. What is your mind? It is your spiritual reality. And he made, he made things, he made rules or law, as you know, the ubiquity of law, right? But anyway. So, why would somebody love money? Why is loving money the root of evil? All evil. How does it connect to the first lie of Satan? Okay, let's try to see if we can get it done today. You see, um, money is used for primarily, this is my position now, primarily for three, uh, three purposes. Every now and then I will give you my opinion, and this is one of those places. Now, I have thought it through, but you might think it through better. So don't think that this is some uh, learned principle when it's really just me. Money is used, in my view, for three primary purposes by those who love it. They use it for self-absorption. In other words, they use it to uh, immerse themselves in it in some fashion or form, to marinate themselves in money. They use it for power and control, and they use it for security. Those are the, what I believe, the three primary purposes of it. And all things will fall under those three headings. And those three things, by the way, are all logically indefensible. And they're all insulting, disrespectful to God, and evidence of a great lack of true wisdom. I'll try to make my case now. Why would somebody want power and control over other people or other things? Why do they want power and control? What's their purpose, their motive, their agenda? Why do some want to dictate? And we have, let me be honest here, let me get myself in real trouble. We have political forces in this country that are, that are founded on the principle of dictating to others how they should behave, what they should eat. You can't buy salt in New York City anymore. What if I wanted to do, I don't want to control how much salt you eat. That'll be obvious here today at the buffet. I don't want to control anything you eat. Why does somebody want to control what I eat? Or what I say? What I wear? What I believe? Why do, why would somebody want power and control to dictate and to confine and to bring to despair and bring to hopelessness and enslave and to kill physically? Who wants to do that? Where does the, where's the genesis of that? Who wants, who started that? Who wants to dictate and enslave and bring to despair and bring to hopelessness and confine and to kill physically? Who's the origin of that kind of thinking? Yeah, that's a satanic concept. He has a reason for doing it. Why? Why does he want to do it? And why would someone, why would a human being want that? What are they attempting? Who has the power over the creation? And he calls himself something. The possessor of all things and omnipotent. He has all the stuff. And he has all the power. Who was the first to say, I will ascend? I will exalt myself over God. 
I will sit on God's throne. I will be above. I will be like God. Who is the first to say that? That is Satan, Isaiah 14, 12. Again, the five I wills of Satan, and I put them side by side with the fivefold lies of Satan. That's on the internet, by the way. That, 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 that statement, I will, is fraught with difficulty. You will what? What exactly can we do? I will. Really. You will what? Little tiny speck cockroach that we are. What will you do? You're going to lower the seas? I've actually heard a politician say that he will cause the seas to lower. You've got to be kidding. That is so profoundly stupid. Everybody that heard that man say that should have all hollered simultaneously, you fool. Be very careful with saying what you will do and what you can do. Anyway, that's just an aside. Why did Satan want to ascend? Why did he want this power? Do you want to be like God? Do you want to be the Most High? Do you want to sit on His throne? Is that what you want? Why did Satan want that? What was his plan? In Satan's case, it has a lot more complexity. Don't, again, don't assign your characteristics to Satan. He is far more intelligent than we are. He knew things that we don't know. He knew that he was lying. That's why it's called a lie. He didn't deceive himself. Some will say he did. I don't believe that's the case. But the basic principle is the same. A man loving power over other men wanting control. What kind of man is that? A man with no, he's a man with no spiritual function. He's totally absorbed with physical reality, which is empty space, so it's just absolute delusion. A man who believes he has accomplished security and he has no need of God. Some football players said, we don't need God. And I said, when we play, like Tebow does, we don't need to be like that. We don't need to give God thanks. We don't need God at all. We're really good. And their field goal kicker misses one from what, 11 yards out? I'm just, I know God doesn't. Fred over football, I get it. When I tried to throw the reference in. And I made the comment last week that that man needed the field to play on. He needed gravity. He needed the light. He needed air to breathe. Come on. You need God constantly. You cannot exist unless he perceives you into existence. Hey. Hopefully, I go on and hopefully you get the drift. Mankind has no control, can never have control. To think of yourself as in control is to fill up with pride. You, I, us, we have no power. Get used to it. God does not ask us to be powerful or to think of ourselves as powerful. He asks us to have humility. He calls us to know from where all blessings flow, from where, from whom all security comes. You think your money is going to keep you secure? You're in big wampum trouble. He gives us security. It's called what? Eternal security. That's right. We have no security. Why does he give us security? Why is there any security? The reason that he gives us security is because it's who he is, and that's why there is any security. We can never ascend to God. What must he do? He has to descend to us. And he did it, right? 
That's the point. He, he must, by the way, descend to us. There is no other possible, it's impossible for us to ascend to him. It's one of the impossibles. How hard is that to understand? Apparently that's very hard for mankind. And the purpose of the physical reality is to teach our spirit about him who is spirit, John 4.24. To ignore the spiritual reality, to deny the existence of the spirituality, to act as if there is no judgment, no eternity, only cessation of existence, to make that your sole objective, to, to be totally focused on what you can get, is the height of, I don't know. You cannot get more foolish than that. What are you doing when you are collecting money? You're grabbing as much empty space as you can? Is that really what you're after? i got to have all the empty nothing that I can get. I'm going to try to be like God. I'm going to have power over people. I'm going to control people. I want power over people. That's my job. That's what I think is good. Yes, sir. Power. You have no power. You have no security. You have no control, and you're grabbing empty space by loving money. And God, what are you saying when you're doing that? What are you saying about the character, the goodness, the the true power of the person of God? God loves what? He says so over and over and over again. What's he love? Living souls. He does not love empty space. How hard is that to figure out? Apparently, again, pretty hard. People will eat bitter poison if somebody adds sugar. They will choke to death on it. Mike said, again, fall down before a block of paper, right? They will worship a block of paper, a handful of paper. They'll worship a rock. They'll love it. Seek to control others with their paper and their rocks. Really? How is that the origin of all evil? What's it saying about God? What's it saying about you? That's how it all fits together. Next week, we'll answer who is the someone who says. Let's rise and be dismissed. We have three minutes. It's the musician's fault if we miss the first commercial. <laughs>